The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, our summer break has arrived, but fear not. We have a great chat Danielle had with Rob S. of the Obsessed by Music podcast that delves into all things music and how it interacts through our lives. From his father's writings on music to Isabella's exciting first steps into being a performer, music is one of our earliest art forms. And as Confucius said, music creates the kind of pleasure that humankind cannot do without. So true. Here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Drunken Taoist. Before we get things going, let me say a few thank you. Thank you, of course, to Short Design T-Shirts for being in our corner since the early days. So if you are in the market for T-Shirts or pants, check out Short Design T-Shirts first and foremost. And then, only then, you could possibly look at getting any other T-Shirt or pants. Also, thank you to zebraathletics.com. Uh, one shout out I want to give to occultherbsandtonics.com. Again, that's occultherbsandtonics.com. These guys are just a family production where what they do is they put together some herbs for meat, for veggies, for all kinds of herbs you can put in the kitchen to use when you're cooking, and they are awesome. Small scale operation, they deserve all the support they can get. So, occultherbsandtonics.com. Of course, the usual shout-out to the people keeping the drunk in the drunken Taoist, Om Cellars and MateraWines.com. But of course, the biggest thank you of all goes to the sweet listeners who decide to part with their hard-earned money to support the podcast. So, in light of that, let's go butcher some names. Let the butchering begin. Here we go with Stephen McKee, Daniel Fischel, Frederick Hahn, Jonathan Waterloo, Ryan Marklin, Keegan Walsh, Stephen Notariani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunica, Istis Juska, John Vergara, Nicola Togni, Joseph Lord, GlobalHobos.com, Jim D'Amico, Samuele Rudelli, Ed and Cario, Andre Garapetian, Joseph Lord, Stephen Rados, Lane Raper, Donald Chipwitten, Luis Peschiera, Yaneli Nima, Jesse Rantakanga, Aaron Weisner, Clayton Payne. You guys are awesome. If you want to join this brave band of heroes, please feel free to donate via PayPal. That's probably the best way to go about it. You can do either paypal.me forward slash D Bolelli, D as in the first initial of my first name, 
Again, that's paypal.me forward slash dbolelli, or otherwise you can paypal to my email address, which is bodhi1974 at yahoo.com. Again, bodhi1974 at yahoo.com. Of course, another way to support the podcast is by using our Amazon link. Having said all that, let me give you a tiny bit of intro to this particular episode. Um, This is a slightly different one. What happens for this one is the following. A gentleman by the name of Rob S. invited me to be a guest on his podcast called Obsessed by Music to chat about the impact that music has had in my life since the early days down to now. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a lot of fun. So, and he was kind enough to let me use the audio for this particular episode. So we're essentially republishing one. He's edited a little, we cut a couple of things, but for the most part, it's the same episode that Rob published on his own podcast. And I'm extremely thankful to be able to offer it to you today. So having said all that, I will now shut up, at least as far as the intro goes. And here we go into the episode. Yeah, because I mean, music has been a huge part of my life since I was a kid. My dad wrote a lot about music. I mean, he wasn't like a journalist. I mean, he was so many things. It's hard to even begin to describe. But one of in one of his many incarnations, he did. Uh, he wrote a few books about music. He would write articles about music. Music was like a central part of my childhood, hundred percent. You know, you sit around and together with my dad, I would just listen to music. And I kind of did the same thing with my daughter, you know, it's like, you know, many people play kids music around their kids and that's, I always played whatever I listened to. And uh, I would just try to expose her to every genre known to man that whatever songs I like in anything. And so it has been, to me, it's not even strange because that's how I grew up and that's how I am with my daughter. But I realized that compared not compared to everybody of course because many people are heavily into music in a big way but compared to many people i definitely tend to shine the spotlight on music more than most and how does she respond i mean how did she respond to that when she was you know really tiny and how does she respond to that now has there been a kind of a transformation yeah i mean she always um it was funny because she would always like, I remember a few years ago when she was in elementary school and uh, she told me a conversation she had with her friends at school and I was die laughing because I thought it was the funniest thing. But she was saying like, how, you know, my friend so-and-so told me uh, Maddie Waters, Howling Wolf, who, who are these people that you are constantly talking about? And, uh, and uh, she was looking at me like, can you believe they don't know who they are? And I'm like, and she was like, should we adopt them? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the funny thing about those artists in particular is that 
the likelihood that anyone her age uh, would be familiar with their work, let alone even know who they are at right. all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the odds are so small. Absolutely. And she was so puzzled that is not like what everybody grows up around that she was like, huh, that is so strange. Right. So you must have been playing. Well, I'm imagining that uh, it's like a kaleidoscope of music at your place from what I can gather. But yeah, so she was onto the blues nice and early, it sounds like. Definitely. And I like me because, you know, I love listening to music, but I have like I have no talent for it. Mm. Um, she's insanely talented. Like since she was tiny, I remember somebody when she they heard her sing around like, you know, the way a little tiny kid can sing when they are three years old. And they were like, holy shit, this kid has a perfect pitch. You need to you need to make sure to cultivate it because she's really I was like, really? Because, you know, I can't even tell. I mean, it sounds good, but what do I know? <laughs> and they were like, no, no for real and in fact i saw it growing up i'm like oh she does have something that i don't even know how to even begin to put to go because i can't do any of that stuff and and in that sense it like it impresses me more about her than other stuff because like she's a great writer but like you know i'm a writer my dad was a writer my mom was so to me like being a good writer is like Okay, well, you're alive and you're breathing. What what's new? You know, it's like mm. every half of the people I know are good writers. So what? But being a good singer, I was like, oh, that I don't know anything about. That um, that's all you. That has nothing to do with where you grew up. You know. I wonder though what influence, and it may be impossible to tell, but I wonder what influence all those many hours of you playing things around the house for her have had. Undoubtedly, it's had some sort of impact, right? For sure. I mean, in terms of musical education, yes. But then, of course, you know, I know all that stuff and I can't mm. sing any tune word crap. So it's like, yeah. you know, you also need to have something different in addition to being, the, you know, the equivalent of well-read. I wouldn't know how to say it in musical terms, but like well exposed to a lot of different music out there. Yeah. It's... um so yeah, it's been fun. It's been yeah. fun. We, you know, we any car ride is a is a treat because we get to play and like, hey, what about this one? Have you ever <laughs> heard this one? And like, and then we go down a rabbit hole of all the discography of uh, I don't know Santana. Okay, let's play all of Santana. You know that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah, great choice too. Like you can get lost in that. Yeah, but about sixty years worth of music in that case. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so the the other, just speaking of your daughter, um, I, I know that on her YouTube channel, and I think you've got it linked on some of your social media uh, sites as well. She performed the song "Bella Ciao." Mm -hmm. Yes, and. I only heard that song recently for the first time. And in fact, her version was the first one I heard. And then I started going deeper in down the rabbit oh, hole yeah. In, yeah. into the history and learned of its history. But what I'm wondering is how did, how did your daughter come to sing that? So we were, I told their stories from uh, my grandmother who was a partisan in Italy in uh, World War II. And then uh, one of our... I guess what would be considered my step-grandfather uh, was uh, one of the guys who arrested Mussolini when Mussolini was trying to flee, flee Italy. Wow. And, and so I was telling her stories from World War II and the partisans, and I, you know, I played a few versions of that song, which was a classic. Um, uh, you probably, there's debate whether it really was a partisan song during World War II or it became later. 
But in either case, it eventually became associated with the partisan movement. And so I played a few versions of that for her. And then, uh, you know, we were talking... There's a friend of mine, uh, Ulysses Bella. He's um, he plays for the band Ozomatli. Yep. They, yep, yep. Yeah, they are awesome band. I really like them. And I was talking with Ulysses, and you know, he heard their sing, and he was like, "Oh, holy shit, she's a good singer." And then <laughs> you know, we we talk about like stuff that they could do at some point for fun together. And and Ulysses was like, "Yeah, maybe we can arrange like because uh, Ulysses is pretty interested in politics and uh, history and all of it." And that seemed like a sweet intersection of it all. And because there was a personal connection, you know, given our family history, Ulysses was like, oh, that would be a fun thing to do. So he arranged uh, a version of Bella Ciao that, uh, you know, he didn't like the fact that many, many versions are a little too upbeat and Mm. too happy. He said, you know, those are good. I like to listen to them, but they don't fit the spirit of a song like that. That's, uh, That's ultimately about really heavy things. And, uh, and so he wanted to create more of a ballad, more of something that would be haunting and deep and emotionally powerful kind of thing. And it was exactly what I was thinking as well. So he was like, yeah, yeah, let me play with it. So he arranged it. It was as good as I could have ever hoped. And then <laughs> uh, they got together, went in studio, recorded and... Um, and yeah, it was, it was pretty sweet because at that time when they recorded, my daughter was 12. She's about to turn 14 now. And it was fun because he was, you know, first time in a recording studio and playing with a really top-notch musician. And it was pretty hilarious. Like even there, we were all laughing because he was like, she made it look like, you know, she came in, she sang it, she killed it. <laughs> and she's like, okay, can, can we go home now? You know, it was just like, <laughs> and, you know, the audio guy, like there were people in the studio were like, Jesus Christ, usually, you know, I record with the pros, it takes me a day to get a good mm. song, you know, to, she like the three versions that were done. <laughs> you know, and we're like, <laughs> I mean, we're here, might as well record for another hour. Let's get a few more takes. But like, yeah. There's really no need. And uh, I was like, well, good. I'm glad uh, that question of is she going to freak out in the studio? I think that has been safely settled. Yeah, it sounds like a, sounds like a total pro. It's funny hearing that, but it's, uh, it reminds me of like Sinatra. Apparently he was quite known, well known for that. The band would rehearse for hours. He would come in, do one or two takes and then off to the club. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, and the funny thing is that I remember her like not a million years ago, but like two or three years ago where she would not want to sing in front. Like the, if she wanted to sing in front of us, she would have to have one of us at a time in the room with her. Like two hmm. would be a crowd. It's like, nope, too shy. And then now she's all like, she could sing in front of anybody and she has no problem. And I'm imagining it as well at that age. Uh, I mean, I have a daughter as well, but she's a little younger. But I think at that age, you every year is a, an evolution, right? Yeah. So yeah, the next however many years are going to be very interesting, I'm imagining for you. And the evolution of an artist, let's say. you know. Yeah, because she's really gung-go about that, about really pursuing it, which of course stressed me out a little bit because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm a little too familiar with creative pursuits and how brutal that process is. And any kind of entertainment industry is uh, not a fan path for the most part. So I'm a little worried, but at the same time, you know, it's something she really wants to do and it's a huge part of who she is, how she expresses herself. So, you know, why not? Let's try. Well, going back to your childhood memories, like when you were, when you were a kid, 
uh, I heard you say on, on one of the Drunken Taoist episodes that there was a passion for music in your house and you spoke about your father in particular. What, what can you remember about the type of music that you were listening to when you were growing up? Um, my dad was funny because you would get into phases, you know, he would just for six months, you would listen almost only to Billie Holiday. And then, and so you listen to that for six months straight. And then, you know, another, the next year is Hendrix. And the next, uh, it's like he would go through these phases where there's music that would be the constant soundtrack in the house. And then, you know, he'll still listen later on, but it's like on rotation once in a rare while. And and so it was interesting how he would just go down this journey. Like I do remember a lot of, uh, particularly when I was little, there was a lot of uh, sort of jazzy Miles Davis, Billy Holiday, things like that. Then there was definitely a heavy rock stuff, all Hendrix, Zeppelin. Then he went more into psychedelic stuff, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, uh, that kind of stuff. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was just anything and whatever you can think of, pretty much. You know, it was just uh, like the other day I heard after I hadn't heard it from the longest time, like Wilson Pickett and a bunch mm. of Motown stuff. And I was like, oh, I remember my dad going through the like, getting me an album of all the top Motown stuff. And we would just listen to it for days on end. And there was a lot of variety. That's for sure. Was that mostly on the radio that you, that he would play music on or that you remember hearing it? Uh, I remember as a kid was just, uh, you know, records, records, records. Right. There were a ton of those. So it was uh, radio. Most of the time they didn't have the kind of music that he wanted, you know, because he was always, he wasn't like niche stuff, but he was also not necessarily like what you would get on an Italian ra- uh, radio on a regular basis. So mm-hmm. it's um, now it was just records one after another. And are you, how do you listen now? Are you, do you stream or do you listen to your own vinyl? Yeah, I don't, I actually just got uh, vinyls back, which makes me cry because by this time, like all my dad's records are gone. So I would have to start from scratch and get oh, no. stuff again. But, uh, but you know, primarily streaming. And in that era, uh, you, you, we're talking what, 70s, 80s? Most yeah, I, I was born in 74. So okay. yeah, probably, and like, I guess, first musical memory, yeah, probably the end of the 70s, early 80s. So they, they often say that those childhood and particular teenage years when it comes to, to anything, but in particular, mm-hmm. the creative arts and music is like a timestamp, but it's almost like a tattoo on the brain, you know, like it just gets yeah. imprinted. I'm imagining that you very much identify with music from that period. I was a evil snob. So if everybody else listened to some stuff, I'm like, I'm not going to listen to that <laughs> stuff. I'm going to listen to something else. So, you know, okay. when everybody was in the 80s listening to 80 music, I was listening to 60s, 70s kind of stuff, much more so. I was much more about, uh, yeah, there was a ton of 60s music, both early 60s, sort of before you have sort of this big rock revolution. Mm-hmm. Or rather, it is still rock, but it's a different kind of rock compared to what you got in the late 60s. And uh, most 80s music, is there stuff that I like in there? Sure. Most of it, not so much. I was not a fan of the the kind of electronic sound from the 80s. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of that stuff sounds incredibly dated today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah yeah that's the feeling like and i don't get that with any other decade you know it's like mm. before and after i don't uh, like there's music that i hear three notes and i'm like okay that's 1984 <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know when it came out immediately because it's uh, and don't get me wrong you know there was great music it did happen it's just if i have to pick a decade that wouldn't be my decade even though that is when i was becoming a teenager and and all that i i watched concerts with my dad as a kid a bunch but i think like the first one on my own it was probably an 80 i think it was prince i think i went to a watch prince in italy when i was 12 years old or something like that wow okay so you are you saying that he was your first live experience uh the first one on my own because i did go to concerts with my dad before but half of the time i didn't even know was playing and you know i was there because my dad was taking me (laughs) um the one that i remember kind of with my friends on my own yeah that was prince in uh must have been like how would I say, 86, something like that. Wow, okay. What a, what a remarkable artist to see as your, you know, one of your first live concert experiences. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's fun because at the time you, you get this concert experience that at the time you don't think they are all that. Or maybe you like them, you know, you think, oh, wow, what an amazing concert. But you don't have the perspective of history of seeing it. Like my dad told me once, he saw Hendrix in 68 in a club with 300 people. Jeez. And there was right, maybe it was 67. It was like right at the time when Hendrix was about to explode in a huge way. And, you know, it was already getting known, but wasn't Hendrix yet. And, Mm. And yeah, he was like, a tiny venue with 300 people <laughs> that's remarkable to have that experience to have that yeah, yeah. which of course yeah. years later you go back and you're like holy shit i can't believe that happened you know but at the moment you're like oh it's fun it's great whatever you know yeah i mean it's funny to hear you talk about prince in particular because uh, i'm a massive fan and and, uh, and he was one of my first concert experiences too so the parallel now i saw him for the first time in 2003 so at a very different stage in his career yep uh, i would have loved to have seen him in 86 or whenever it was that you uh, you had the privilege incredible i i definitely i saw it twice one of them was a sign of the times oh, yeah. that he was doing say that oh, and you uh, <laughs> and what was either right before or right after just hearing you say that already makes not only me but countless prince fans jealous who were not around at the time because 86 87 88 is pretty much arguably his greatest few yeah. years yeah and yeah. yeah so congratulations on that <laughs> yeah i got i definitely got lucky with that for sure yeah, incredible. Is that because you were a fan at the time? Was it just, or was it just a mood in Italy, or what was? Was that an artist that you were listening to? Yeah, definitely. I think he was. Uh, I think Prince was my very first audio cassette <laughs> that I got. As I think Purple Rain was. Uh, I remember watching the movie Purple Rain in theaters, and then I remember, yeah, I had the audio cassette of Purple Rain. I really like. I'm sure my dad exposed me to him. I. I it wouldn't have come up otherwise. And I was really, really into it. And, you know, other people started, it wasn't quite as, uh, you know, we're talking junior high kids. It wasn't exactly a household name for among junior high kids, but, you know, enough kids had heard a song or they were like, oh, I like the, you know, so it wasn't like complete uh, unknown for the crowd I was going around with. Of course, it was huge every in other places, but, you know, for my crowd was still a little... Little unknown, but not really, you know, enough that you could talk to them about it. 
And how did that, I mean, how did the music of Prince compare to other things you were listening to at the time? I'm imagining 86, so you're a teenager. Were you into more alternative things? You mentioned earlier that you were usually a little bit left of center. Yeah, I mean... uh... Contemporary stuff, I think he was Prince at the very, very top. And I think I was listening to a lot of non-contemporary stuff of earlier generations, right? Uh, more 60s and 70s. How, how about Italian music of the, of the era or of any era? You know, it's funny. I used to, because I grew up in Italy, so I was exposed to it all the time and I hated it with a passion. I was like, I would hear Italian music and I'd be like, I don't want to hear that crap. And of course, it's totally close-minded because there were great things. Um, not usually the stuff you would run to, into on the radio. You know, most of the popular stuff was, uh, I still find it fairly awful. Um, it's changed now. You know, it's changed now. You get somebody like uh, Maniskin, they're, they're really good at what they do. You know, it's like, like old music, you either dig it or you don't, but they are objectively talented, you know. My dad later in life wrote a book with um, Lorenzo Cherubini, Giovanotti. So he's pretty big in Italy. He was like kind of in the hip hop slash rap slash became something else entirely down the road and started, uh, which is funny because he was never like a great singer or anything, but somehow he made it work. You know, one, he was a great songwriter, but then he partially his personality kind of could... uh, uh, overcome some of the more technical issues where, you know, he, he didn't have this great voice or anything, but but he made it work. And he's a fantastic live performer and he was fun. So, so speaking of, of your, your father again your, and the, the books he was writing, were they, what were they about with respect to, to music? The musical ones, other than the one with, that he wrote with Giovanotti, which that mm. one is not even about music. That's like about a year of them exchanging emails and talking about life, the universe, and everything else kind of <laughs> stuff. But like the, um, the early stuff, when he was writing about music, I, I was kind of too little. So I think I read them at some point, but I don't remember them super well. And he was also writing for a magazine. But again, all of these is like such an early phase of his life that is sort of fuzzy in my memory. And I I recall you mentioning that he worked with Eno on something too, but I couldn't quite grasp what that was. (laughs) Yeah, he did uh, work with Brian Eno that uh, Brian Eno wanted to do. Eno came to Italy and with my dad, they set up something where Eno was doing music, but also there were some, um, they weren't sculptures. They were kind of like, Fuck, I wish I remembered it well. Uh, I, I, again, I remember seeing Nino with my dad and them doing stuff, but it was so fuzzy in the distant hmm. past that I'm, uh, I'm missing some pieces in that story there, you know? Yeah, maybe, sure. maybe it'll, it might, it might, you never know. You might wake up one day and it'll just hit you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, I have a child memory of it. So I remember the place where they were. I remember them talking. I remember, you know, music, but I don't remember what the whole container, so to speak, it was like. So outside of Eno, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you've actually played some Eno on your, yep. on your show as well. In fact, some of that I was listening to recently and it, I had to, I literally had to pause it and, and come back to it another time because it got a really emotional, like some yeah. of his instrumental stuff is just a bit, yeah, it can really impact you emotionally. So hundred uh, percent. I, cause I came to him late and I was yeah. like, geez, this, this is some incredibly deep stuff here. Um, 
Yeah, there's one in particular. There's, I mean, there's every so many great songs, but there's uh, that album, Another Green World, mm. and he has that. Uh, the whole thing is fantastic, but he has that song, The Big Ship, and of course, I can't pronounce ship word anything, so I'm actually saying S H I P, not S H E E P, which to me are the same word. I cannot hear how they are pronounced differently, but. Yeah, we're, yep. we're not talking about an animal. We're talking about a large boat. And yep. uh, yeah, that's such a powerful song, man. It's so emotional, intense. It's a tough one because the times that I've heard it, I, I haven't been able to get through it without, you know, grabbing a box of tissues or, yeah. uh, yep. you know, it's just, yep. it's a bit, and, and, and then you think to yourself, how could, and that's barely three minutes long. And it's like, yep. how could something like that, impact so much so yeah remarkable ah, absolute remarkable. genius i mean yeah it's really fantastic for me i think there's a double layer there because the music is emotionally powerful and i think he was such a key part early on of my life and then like shortly before my father died i remember sitting with him and he was listening to Eno a lot like after he hadn't really listened to him for many 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 years mm. And so there's kind of an arc of like going back in time to a time when I was little and I remembering kind of at the very end. So it adds oh, wow. uh, an extra layer of uh, of emotion to the whole thing. Right. Yeah, the gra- gravitas, that's, he- that's heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heavy, heavy, but real. Yeah. I'm like, I have to confess, I spend like half of my days crying about something. I'm like <laughs> making me cry. Admittedly, it's not the hardest thing in the world because I love to be moved by stuff. So I love mm. to be moved by music. I love to be moved by movies. I love to be moved by pretty much anything you can think of. I mean, I, f- I just finished playing a damn video game and I found it so insanely moving that I spent three days just re-watching scenes and just getting all teary-eyed. So I cry at everything. <laughs> yeah, I heard you speak about that. That was, that was yeah, I mean, quite remarkable, the, the story arc and all that sort of stuff. But, but, but you know, as much as a, ga- a video game or a movie can do that, uh, sound waves can can yep. can also have a, a similar effect you know it's, it's just crazy. absolutely and i think that's what i care about because ultimately you know I'll, uh, I'll listen to music for fun because it sounds good but at the end of the day it's about emotions you know it's about the emotional chords that it can touch in you if it doesn't do that i'm not that interested you know like i'll listen for fun once in a while but what I care about are the emotion, which is actually interesting because like, for example, with my daughter, she says that I help her a lot with her music, which is hilarious because I don't know anything about music in terms of real knowledge, you know, not technique, not the music language, not what I do with her is uh, I talk to her about emotions. You know, Hmm. I start talking to her about uh, like, for example, she usually you know, because she's skilled that she usually nails more or less whatever she want to sing. But like she was trying to sing this one song. Oh, you ever heard that song? Uh, it was even covered by Shakira called Say Something. Does that vaguely ring a bell or? No, or really? I mean, I know Shakira, but uh, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, that's, it doesn't. That's a cover that she did. Um, it's a much, it's kind of a sadder song. And, and, you know, sad would be fine. My daughter has no problem getting into intense vibes that way. But I think like she was struggling with it because the emotion of that song is uh, like the, the lead in the song is 
essentially begging somebody. There's a sense of mm. not just sadness, but there's... And I was like, oh, this is why you suck at this song, because you don't know that emotion. Like, begging mm. to you, it pisses you off. It's like, that's not who you are. And so I was like, okay, okay, let's try something else. And so I gave it an image of, like, what kind of emotion to channel instead of the begging vibe. And then she nailed it immediately. And I was like, holy shit, how did that? And she's like, because you switched switched the energy for me of what I'm going for. And, you know, I can sing the notes. That's not the issue. It's, it's what I put behind the notes that I, that was wrong. And now, and so we end up most of the time, you know, she asked me what I think, not because I'm going to have a sophisticated musical critique, but I'll tell her what I feel, what I, the emotional colors I see there, you know, and what to go for, you know, why don't we accent this a little bit more? Why don't we tone that down a little and that seems to be the language that it definitely for me, because I don't have any other to speak about music, but also for her is the what uh, makes it click, what uh, makes a song really come to life. That's interesting because as, as I hear you uh, explaining that, it makes me, makes me think of Rick Rubin. It's like you're her Rick yeah. Rubin, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's like, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about specifically, but here is add a touch of this and it's like oh yeah. and now it's different and it's something yeah. else yeah it's produ- produced by daniele bolelli at that point it's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious but yeah, yeah. And i think uh, and i think it's you know because i'm that way and i like that emotional pathos behind it all it's funny because being a little kid, she always listened to music that was very emotional intense, you know, like one that I know she wants to record a cover of now. Uh, remember that guy, Tim Buckley, mm-hmm. the father of Jeff yep. Buckley? Yep. Yeah, he has, I mean, many songs are great, but he has this one song called uh, Phantasmagoria in Two. Right. That's <laughs> such a beautiful, heartbreaking song and... Uh, and those are the things that she tends to nail, where she's like, she can tap into that emotion and, and run with it. Well, can't wait to hear that. I mean, that's, that's quite a, m- melodically, and it's, a, again, another deep song, that one. But it, so much of that comes down to lived experience, right? And yeah. it comes back to that emotional, the emotional core of, mm-hmm. of the song, but also of the person. So, yeah, yeah that'll, be, that'll be interesting. And I think that's why, and I don't know if she's the way she is because of how I raised her or she was the way she is regardless and how I raised her just facilitated. But uh, like when I, I forget because of course I'm around there all the time and that's all I know. I don't have other kids. And, but like when anybody meets her, they are laughing at me because they're like, how old is she again? You know, <laughs> 13 going 40 is like, what the hell, you know, 13 year olds don't talk like these, don't have that away. It's just not something which, you know, in some way it sounds like a compliment and I'm sure they mean it that way. But on the other hand, is not necessarily, it's not something that either me or her were patting ourselves on the back saying job well done, victory, because there's a lot of prices to pay for that kind of uh, intense emotional maturity at an early age is not always a good thing you know yeah i mean i could i could only imagine because especially just thinking about something simple like the peer group or friends or you know what's what's going on with uh, who you're socializing with but uh, yeah 
I mean, if it's the thing is, I, I would think that, like with music, if it's honest and if it's coming from a real place, then you know things should be fine. Things even out in the end, kind of thing. I think in the end being the keyword because I think when you are a little older, all of that stuff start clicking better. When you are really young, um, it doesn't feel like a gift. It feel like a curse because you are probably end up feeling very alienated from other kids without even meaning to you know you can be talking about exactly like you talk about stuff that to you is normal and you mention hey you listen to muddy waters and everybody look at you like you're an alien you know yeah well i I mean i know a little bit about what that what that feels like because i remember when i was a lot younger and you know 10 12 years old my my father would play uh leonard cohen bob dylan and and cat stevens you know that was the staple and no one as you could imagine, in the mm-hmm. mid '90s, was listening to that. You know, kids right. in the playground were not <laughs> Dylan fans, <laughs> right? Yes, right. and I mean, by the time Cat, St- by the time I brought up Cat Stevens, you know, I was laughed out of the room. Uh, of out course, of the, the room. So I kind of I have some idea of of what that's like, and you and and you become a bit of a loner, and I certainly was for, for a period of time. But I think the great thing about today's era. And what's available online is that maybe you can find your your tribe in real life, but also online. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of communities and podcasts, for example, and right. people that are that are into what you like. And, and then maybe 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 this new generation won't feel as isolated because they know that they're not that they, they know that they're not alone. Whereas I thought. You know, I was the only person that was listening to that sort of music. In of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> After growing up in Italy um, and, you know, eventually you you came to America, but in, in between, mm-hmm. what was what what role or what part did music play in, in your life, th- you know, throughout your, um, you know, as you were growing up, basically, as an adult? I mean, it has always been... Uh... Like in everything I do, you know, like if I sit down to write or to create something, I like to have my soundtrack that's not just for for pleasure, it's it's designed to get me into a certain state of mind, which will get me to write in a certain way, you know, so I'll use it professionally. I'll use it uh, in, you know, in a bunch of, there's always that idea of uh, music as a tool to take you to a particular emotional place that's either because you want to write in a certain way or because you want to think in a certain way or you want to, so as, has really been at the, um, at the core of so much. Um, interesting enough, I do go to concerts, but I don't go that much, you know, I'll go once in a while. So even being in us, having access to so many great concerts in the Los Angeles area, you know, I watch stuff, but not nearly as much as you would think, given how, how interested I think because maybe, maybe because growing up music to me was a at home thing was something mm. that would be it was less of this social event or big live event like that was fun but it wasn't the primary way in which i consumed it you know right you mentioned that you you use music for different purposes you listen to different things obviously and for different reasons yep yep when you want to listen for fun mm-hmm. what do you listen to generally let's see i mean it changes over time of course there's always like the new stuff that i'm listening to in that period that is like you know i do get a little obsessive with new songs where suddenly i'm listening to death to the same song for a week where everybody's like 
make it stop already. It cannot be, you know, it was a great song about 212 plays ago. Now we all hate it because you can't shut up about it. And uh, let's take a look what I've been listening to lately. Um, I think um, I think these days they call that the Harry Styles effect, from what I can yeah, gather. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I get. <laughs> you know, I uh, let's see. I've been listening to a bit of. Um, you know, I I heard uh, Dropkick Murphys before, but there's a song of there called Rose Tattoo, which is actually one of the most famous songs. But for some reason, I always missed it before. And uh, once I started hearing it, it's been one of those that I've been listening to obsessively as of late. I heard, um, speaking of rediscovering old stuff, because there's, uh, we went to a concert of somebody we know, uh, Cedric Burnside. Cedric is the grandson of uh, R.L. Burnside, sort mm-hmm. of a blues legend. So getting into his grandfather's stuff has been a lot of fun because I heard a little of R.L. Burnside earlier, but not nearly as much as I should have. And now I'm getting into it and I'm like, oh, wow, this stuff is amazing. So I've been playing with that quite a bit. Uh, Oh, you know what? Did you ever see that? um, It's sort of a teenage uh, TV series, but it's fun. Uh, Wednesday, the Adams Family one. Uh, I've, I've seen, I think that's on Netflix, right? It is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched it, but I, I can I can see a visual of it. Yeah. There's a great cover of uh, Nothing Else Matters done by this group, uh, Apocalyptica, and it's all instrumental and uh, there's no singing. It's fantastic. I oh, love, that's love, that love sounds that like song. what I've been that sounds like what I've been waiting my whole life to hear. Metallica without the lead vocalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, check it out then. It's uh, <laughs> the group is called Apocalyptica. And they right. are like a string group primarily, you know, uh-huh. it's like they yeah. do a regular string and then they electrify them and, and their cover of nothing else matter. It's just a masterpiece. I'll have to definitely check that out. Well, I mean, and, and by the way, I, it, I'm kind of tongue in cheek on the Metallica comment. Yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do like them, but sometimes it just gets a bit much. That's awesome. right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, one that's, I guess, is a little out of left field, but that I've been enjoying a bunch. It's not as recent for me, but um, are you familiar with a group called uh, Tribe Called Red? They are native folks from Canada who mix electronic music with traditional Native American music. And the effect is fantastic. No, I haven't heard them. They're brilliant. They have, um, like, there's this one song called Stadium Pow Wow. That's just so good. It's, you know, to me, it's like you tell me traditional native stuff and electronic music. I'd be like, eh, that doesn't sound right. But they make it work. They make it work really good. All right. I'm jotting that down, jotting that down as we speak. That actually reminded me a little bit of uh, your, your intro. Well, I don't know if I can call it intro music, but there's music that you play at the, towards the beginning of the Drunken Towers podcast, which is the song the running man by daisy house oh yeah 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 which yeah. i really love it's it's like a it's got this tribal feel yeah it's a great song i, I don't know get a lot similar or different to what you're describing what this other band is like but i mean the other one is there's a very clear it's not like hinted at is a very okay. clear <laughs> native thing it's like the there's native singing there it's sound like power music but filter through an electronic vibe and it's okay. it's brilliant they're cool. really really good 
Let's hope that we can continue to cherish all of this real stuff with the advent of AI coming around the corner. Right. <laughs> terrifying in some ways, but yes. Yeah. I mean, I heard you talk about AI in general in a recent podcast episode, and I, and I myself recorded my thoughts on AI and its potential impact on music. And I think terrifying is a good word to use. I think unfortunate is probably another word I'd use because it seems like you know, why, and I asked this question, why are we so quick to jump the gun, it seems like, with, with this new technology and attempt to, as you said on your show, attempt to uh, potentially dispossess ourselves of our creative abilities when there's so many other problems we could be fixing. It sounds very strange to me. Yeah, I mean, exactly, because it's like creativity should be the last place where you put AI in charge. You know, you have, uh, there are 3 million things that as human beings we have to do and nobody wants to do that. And if like you could remove that from human life, that would be fantastic. But to put AI in charge of creativity, that just seem uh, like it start robbing us of meaning. You know what I mean? It start taking away from us the things that we do for fun. You know, take away all the stuff that we do that's like drudgery, that's like the ugly work that we don't want to do. Not the stuff that we do for fun to express ourselves to, you know, really kind of at the core of who you are. That's not the stuff that you want a substitute for. Yeah, I think it's a great point that you're making. And and the other, it got me thinking about this whole, this whole concept of, you know, and obviously no one knows what the future holds, but one optimistic angle that I managed to uncover Mm -hmm. was this idea of, Let's worst case scenario, right? We're all replaced uh, by robots, and that includes includes the creative arts, and we're living in a in an entirely AR generated world. Right. Yeah. Includes music, song, dance, etc. So that's terrible. But I think one thing that AI can't do, and this is the optimist in me popping up, is it can't make disappear the masterpieces of the past. Sure. Sure. You know, so I actually have a feeling that even if it gets bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> we will at least have a period of time. I don't know yep. how long it'll go for, but a period of time where the, the real stuff in inverted commas mm-hmm. may actually become even more valuable because no one knows whether Taylor Swift's new song in 2023 was 50% generated by AI, Right. Right. But everyone knows that Hendrix's debut album was entirely a man-made creation and therefore it becomes something otherworldly in a, in a, in a very weird, sure. sick, sick sense. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of hopeful of that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on... I mean, my only concern about that part, and I don't mean to spoil the only silver lining you found, because <laughs> that would be wrong, but, uh, you know, the... Um, my concern would be that when you're buried with enough uh, content where, you know, people like kind of what you were saying, you know, somebody in the 80s had no idea who Dylan was because the kids weren't growing up around that stuff. And in here, you're talking fucking Bob Dylan, you know, you're mm. talking as to me it's like there's that concern that is like if you're just bombarded with the novelty constantly produce every second so much of what existed in the past become a thing for you know there's the weird nerd who knows what that was like it's already kind of like that let alone when you produce at the speed and the intensity that ai can i feel like 
you know, that stuff will be there and the people who discover it will go like, oh my God, that's amazing. But how many do? When you are, you know, it's kind of like finding the proverbial needle in the haystack at that point. Thank you for utterly destroying any hope uh, that humanity Sorry. has. Of- <laughs> but, yeah, anytime you need me to find like the worst possible take on something, just call me and I'll. Uh, I'll be- <laughs> it's actually really funny in that sense because, like, my dad was the most optimistic guy on earth. Like, you could give anything to him and he would find a way to spin it in a brilliant way. And uh, I don't share that characteristic. I mean, I'm actually, you know, I'm a happy guy. I enjoy life. But yeah, I tend to be like, okay, first, let me tell you how it's going to be absolutely horrible. Once I have utterly and truly depressed you, then I'm like, no, 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 no. But come on, we're not going to give in to this (laughs) stuff, are we? Now we can start working on uh, happy stuff, you know? Yeah, but, no, it, uh, <laughs> it it's the it's the power in your case. I think it's the power of negative thinking. Can we call it that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have a very realistic, optimist vibe. So it needs to start with the realism, which is usually heavy, bleak, and depressing. And then once we have a, once I've painted a scenario where everybody wants to shoot themselves, then that's where I go into the okay. <laughs> let's find let's find the thing that make us happy in the middle of all this. Yeah, let's take out all those Prince records again and and remind ourselves what music used to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real stuff. But actually, speaking of negative thinking, that reminds me a little bit, a complete tangent, but it reminds me a little bit of an interview that I saw years ago with uh, Nate Diaz. Mm -hmm. And I remember Nate saying something like, I can't remember the question the reporter asked him, but his answer was something like, uh, when I think about the the upcoming fight like i think about every possible thing that can go wrong mm-hmm. like i i think about getting you know thrown around the cage yep knocked out yep. choked unconscious that's what i'm focusing on this training camp like that was basically what he was saying and right i remember at the time thinking i've never heard any other fighter in my life say anything remotely like that and I've never forgotten it because it was like, it was in a weird way, similar to the comment that you made earlier about music and AI. It's like, imagine the worst case scenario and then prepare yourself for that. Yeah. Um, you don't want to get to that stage, but know that it's possible. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's important because uh, in some way, it may help you reduce anxiety because, um, which seems counterintuitive, but I think it's, uh, you know, like, you know what, that there's stuff to be afraid of in that context. You know that there's, and by not bringing it out in the open, by not acknowledging it, I think it's, uh, it's, it's there in the background trying to get you. Whereas if you think like, look, there's no way, I don't know that I'm going to win. I don't know that I'm going to do well. I may be totally and utterly humiliated on an emotional level. I may get destroyed in the fight on a physical level. And coming to peace with that, coming to a place where it's like, okay, I have no control over any of that, but I have control over going out there and fighting with every last ounce of energy I have. That actually is relaxing, you know, because if you focus on outcome, you're screwed because the outcome is never guaranteed. And so that's going to give you a mountain of anxiety. If you focus on only the part that you do control, which is the how you want to go out, how, you know, not how well you're going to do, because you have no idea, but how hard you're going to go into it, how intense you're going to go, well, that you can control. 
And that's like one of the few freedoms you have. And focusing on that, I think, actually helps relieve anxiety. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Like you said, counterintuitive, but it could be the key yeah. to, to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's 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 hope that happens. Uh, well, for, for the world in general, but for 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 the slant of this particular show, for the creative arts and for music specifically, because I think it's it's you know arguably one of the greatest accomplishments among many others. But you know, it's one of the oldest art forms, and it would be I think it would be tragic for mm-hmm. it to become entirely displaced by zeros and ones and uh the lack of human creation yeah 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 no 100 because ultimately ultimately that's what life is about you know that's what uh, otherwise people are trapped into a cycle of like uh, working make money in order that one day you'll feel you know the beauty of something like music is that it's very in the moment you know it's like it's right here right now that tune that bring you to a place that emotionally bring you to an emotional place now and it's not promising future happiness it's not telling you about work like a dog for 10 years so that one day you'll afford this it's right here right now those notes that's as good as it's gonna be you know those (laughs) notes right now take you to that place um there's no future promise it's uh it's very in the moment kind of thing yeah it's interesting to hear you say that because i I think we forget that often, but it's like living in the moment. Yeah. That, that's what it really is. Any kind of, it's like a flow state. If you, as you were saying earlier, like you put that Eno stuff on or whatever, something that moves you, mm-hmm. you f- can f- forget where you are momentarily. Absolutely. 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 It's, I mean, yeah. it, in some way, music is a psychedelic in the literal sense, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's taking you to a different state of consciousness. It's, uh, you know, people always talk about psychedelics as in substances that take you to a different state of consciousness. I mean, music is like sort of the ultimate psychedelic. Is music, that's what it's designed to do in so many ways. I love that. You've, you've just given me the title of this episode, Music, the Ultimate Psychedelic with Daniel Ebolelli. <laughs> I, I like it. That's excellent. <laughs> I love that. That's perfect. You can, you've coined the phrase. Yeah, I was really, I'm really curious to get your thought on some, your thoughts on something, which is philosophy. And I know that, uh, I mean, what does that mean? That's, I'm just throwing that word out there. But when I was listening to some of your recent episodes, mm-hmm. the, clearly you live in this world, mm-hmm. in the world of thought and in the world of the, the history of, of thinking and theology. And, you know, it's very much your sphere. One thing that I wonder about is how often does, music in any form come up in the realm of philosophy, but in particularly in the lives of philosophers? Mm, 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 mm. You know, with philosophy is interesting because to me, I have a very hot and cold relationship with philosophy in the sense that to me, I either love somebody philosophically or it's I so don't care that I don't even understand it to, to that <laughs> level. You know, it's either like, really hit me to the core in a powerful way or i'm completely and utterly uninterested in it and that's kind of how like the majority of philosophy out there i don't care for and to be honest i don't even like if i try to read it i fall asleep in three seconds and then i'll read something else and i'll be like oh my god this is perfect from a to z and it clicks immediately for me and 
so it's interesting in that terms. It's kind of like in that sense, I have a very musical approach to it because to me, it either it speaks to me, it grabs my attention, or it doesn't. There's hmm. no, it's not an intellectual process that like, oh, I'm beginning to understand it. It's like, no, I'll either get it right away or I won't. There's no, like to me, the, um, I'm trying to think of like major philos- philosophers that I dig. Like tonight, uh, okay, this is not going to help my case of making me sound less weird than I was trying to come across. But like, yeah, with my 13-year-old daughter as a bedtime story, I was reading her Friedrich Nietzsche, that spoke Zarathustra. And um, (laughs) yeah, that's always a great start, right? (laughs) It's uh, and uh, and it's interesting. There's so much music that shows up in Nietzsche's philosophy. There's um, like anything from lines where he talks about I could only believe in a god that can dance. Or then he, I remember my dad describing Nietzsche, and they were passing because you know Nietzsche has a fame for being heavy and intense and you know not the most light-hearted thing in the world but there were passages in there where my dad was like you know Nietzsche right here is describing basically Bert Bacharach he's describing this super light-hearted mellow music that just add a little happiness to your day-to-day life and it sounds like the exact opposite of what people remember Nietzsche for you know <laughs> and uh and I thought it was interesting you know they thought it was a pretty funny way to look at it I I don't think they would have crossed over necessarily but just the picture of of Friedrich listening to Bert Bacharach is incredibly, an incredibly odd idea to right? consider raindrops. I, I can't imagine imagining his uh, facial expression while he's listening to raindrops keep falling on my head. But yeah, it's funny because, you know, there's so much Nietzsche that's like larger than life and intense and powerful. But then he has these passages where he's so unsuspectingly light-hearted and mellow and happy and talking about like shedding heaviness and going in the direction that's the exact opposite right and, and you know in some cases he's explicitly musical and in some cases he's not it's just the vibe that you can read musically but doesn't have to be and, uh, I, I wonder if those happy periods were when the pills kicked in or something like that because it's a I don't think he's he's not generally known for that. Like the j- common, someone from the general public, probably their perception of him is brooding and mm-hmm. serious, right? For sure. So it's it's interesting. I mean, but every, there's a duality in everything, I guess. Yeah, and I think he's... Uh... I mean, ultimately, you know, you look at somebody like Nietzsche, the guy went crazy. So I wouldn't (laughs) recommend looking for systematic thought in Nietzsche, which is why I think like academic philosophers really miss the target when talking about Nietzsche, because to me, Nietzsche is a poet, is, you know, it's hit or miss. And hit or miss, not only how it resonates with you, but even his own stuff. Like there are some things where he's channeling something superior is so perfect and then there's another page where you're like, Friedrich, what the hell were you thinking about here? You know, it's like, what's wrong? Talk to me because this doesn't sound good, you know? But yeah, I don't know. It's um, th- There's stuff that's like, yeah, not what you would expect. Let's put it that way. I mean, okay. even like that whole passage when he talks about... Uh, 
there's a chapter in Das Sprach Zarathustra called about uh, reading and writing. And he talks about this idea of his that like the ideal God for him is one that can uh, dance lightheartedly, you know, and uh, it's like, wait, what? And, uh, and he talks like the whole thing is about how what he consider a demon is the spirit of gravity and heaviness and this stuff that pull you down. And, and the solution is found in, in really being able to, lighten up which is not a classic Nietzsche that's not what people remember about Nietzsche but it's there you know it's right in there and I thought it's you know those are the moments when Nietzsche really shines in a beautiful way but yeah in my mind you know you take somebody like Nietzsche and you put it uh, listening to whatever pick your pick on whatever you think would be good music like the poor guy grew up in Germany in the late 1800s those are heavy vibes you know mm, I yeah. think in much of the world in the 60s or 70s like he would have been a, a very different creature Mm. I, I wonder how he would have reacted to some to someone like the Spice Girls, for example. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But, uh, apparently, the the and I don't know how true this is, but the quote has been attributed to him is without music life would be a mistake right yeah 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 no and in fact that's why i'm saying like it shows up the theme of music shows up a lot in uh, nietzsche's philosophy like a, a lot a lot a lot okay so if we're not gonna start a new supergroup made up of popular philosophers mm -hmm. are there were there any religious like really prominent religious figures that you can think of that were musically inclined or you know waxed lyrical about that art form uh religion i mean when you think about religion music has been a key element in all the religions since the dawn of time right i mean if you think about like the first rituals that you talk about like cave people type of uh which of if that's itself is a curious historical archetype because may or may not be accurate but regardless like when you think about like our very distant ancestors there's a lot of archaeological evidence to suggest that some of their first religious rituals were music played a huge role in it uh, music and dancing sometime related to performative magic like so for example hmm. if you wanted to pray for a successful hunt you are appealing to spirits in such a way that you know, you would mimic the hunt in a dance. You would have drums going. You do this whole thing where is it a religious ceremony? It's a concert. It's a dance party. Uh, take your pick. It's all of the above, you know? Yeah. The, the, the first live performances <laughs> would yeah. have looked very different. There's no pyrotechnics and flashing lights, but yeah. No, no, no. But um, I did write once a tiny thing that was called... Uh, uh, mammoth porn and the caveman's hip hop, the origins of religions. Because hmm. the whole thing was about how, you know, these guys, the two main images that show up in all the cave painting is images of animals being hunted and images of animals having sex. Because in both cases, you need, you know, you're praying for a successful hunt. And then once you have a successful hunt, you need to make sure that the animals get get busy again to make more animals otherwise you're screwed so the two primary concerns are the successful hunt but then also animals having sex because that mm. will bring more of them 
and so there's a, so much cave art about animals having sex that I was like mammoth porn. But then like the other aspect was like the, the caveman hip hop, the fact that there's evidence that some of these early religious rituals were ritual dances. They were right. with music and they were ritual dances. And, you know, even if you move past prehistory, even in modern religions, just about everything has that element that, you know, if you go to a ton of churches, the music played in church played a huge role. Yeah. And the reality is that half of the people, and, you know, if you talk theologically, they had no idea what the hell they were talking about, but they were there because the music moved them, because it yeah. touched them, you know? Well, isn't that interesting? It's that emotional, it's impact on the emotion, on the central nervous system, <laughs> really, yep. you know, on the emotional core of of uh, human beings, you know, yep. a, bit of, a bit of pipe organ in a, in an echoey room, mm -hmm. church. And, you know, for example, I mean, yeah, yeah, I could imagine that, but going back to your animal, the animals comments, I mean, that sounds like rock and roll to me. Yeah, you know, exactly. Those... <laughs> precisely, precisely. Right. You have, yeah. cause that's the other thing is like, what did they do in the dances? Well, what we know from many tribal religions is that you are mimicking what you're praying for so you know in a dance you are mimicking a successful hunt but then if you're praying for the animals having sex you need to get them hot and sweat so you are probably German picturing cavemen and cavewomen grinding into each other in like the ancestor of hip-hop trying to convince right. the animals <laughs> to get busy you know <laughs> and from that and from that only a only a small period of time later you end up with 50 cents in the club and then exactly back to <laughs> that's exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> it all comes back down yes to one thing. exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, I, I wanna I wanted to just throw a few quotes your way. Um, mm -hmm. th this is what, what I could find. This is kind of what we're talking about. Saint Augustine, mm -hmm. who apparently said, "To sing is to pray twice," mm -hmm. which I found really that's that's kind of like a sweet quote. You know, it's like it's a beautiful quote. Not. Not exactly what you would expect from St. Augustine, because if there ever is a killjoy, that is that guy. I I once had to read for school the autobiography of St. Augustine when I was 16, and I oh, was wow. on a trade ride. I was reading the whole damn book. Man, that's like a horrible way to look at life. Like, that guy really bummed me out. Which is a strange. Well, I mean, considering what you've just said, it's similar to to the to the Nietzsche, uh, yeah, du duality, if you will. You know, to sing is to pray twice. I mean, unless yeah. he was, uh, unless the singing was done in the shower, you know, right, uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> not in front of <laughs> other p human beings. No, but that's a great quote, regardless. You know, I hate yeah. the guy, but the quote is fantastic. <laughs> Good on him. Another thing that came up was uh, Plato and Socrates. So Plato mm -hmm. apparently apparently wrote or said something like. Rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul. Mm. Mm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's, that's that's Plato. Fantastic. That's Plato uh, doubling up on what you were saying. Really, yeah. you know yeah. that it's just that's where it that it's all about the emotion and how it how it makes us respond. And Socrates apparently had, the, had a similar view. The purpose of music is to encourage the development of a good soul. Mm. Wow, man, these are good quotes. Those are really good quotes. And that Socrates one is is amazing because he's actually attributing a purpose to the form and, mm. and saying it's about building and developing a good soul and character, really, in a way right. as well. I mean, well, you know, what does that say about some of the stuff that's out there today? But 
maybe we don't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, and but I mean, to I, me, yeah. that's a good question, right? The idea of like, and again, you know, you can't be, especially when you talk about something like music, you can't be a judgmental fascist where you're like, anybody who doesn't like my music is an idiot and you like that stuff. It's like, you know, ultimately, there's a huge subjective element to all of this stuff. You know, what somebody find emotional and beautiful, somebody else find cheesy and and stupid and vice versa. So I'm not, you know, trying to sit on the throne to establish what is good music and what's not. But to me, there are, on a purely subjective level, there are things that speak to you and things that don't speak to you. There are things that turn some happy chemicals in your brain and things that don't. And, you know, then we can sit to an Analyze why that is and what's but at the end of the day it's about an effect that's created you know it's like uh, it either works for you or it doesn't why it works for you or it doesn't or why it should work for you how can you not understand it is like it's not even about understanding here it's something that precedes understanding you know that operates <laughs> on a whole other level yeah precedes understanding that's so interesting yeah i mean it's powerful it moves you it touches your emotions it uh, makes you it makes your mind go in all sorts of places but it's not an intellectual process it's not that you say you know i'm gonna put uh, such and such concept into the music and this is gonna it's it doesn't work that way you know yeah, and, and, and it hasn't thus far. Yeah, I mean, I think with the rise of AI and ChatGPT, things will change. But I think that's why the classics, it's great that we have the classics, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and to make a comparison to the book burning that has happened for, so, you know, for centuries in so many different parts of the world, I think the one great thing is that as compared to physical books, I mean, I guess you could rip up cassettes and vinyl mm-hmm. records. The fact that music has gone digital now and people can have their own backups and copies, hopefully we can save it, save it for ourselves, you know, even if Spotify and <laughs> takes over, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> disappears. I mean, the fact that you can take out a record or, or a, even a CD, I mean, I still have CDs. Mm-hmm. Or just play music uh, uh, from an MP3 file that you've stored on on your computer. Um, I think there's something to be said for that to to preserve what is out there, you know, right. because it can be taken away. Yep, that makes sense to me. Well, look, I, I I have to do this. I'm going to finish by throwing in a last quote, Confucius, an excerpt from the from the great man: "Music produces a kind of pleasure which human nature cannot do without." Yeah. Hard to disagree with that. (laughs) Hard to disagree. And to me, one of the trippiest things when thinking about history is think about the fact that until uh, when were the first phonographs, like late 1800s or something like that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the entirety of human history before that, the only music you would ever hear is live music. Is yes. either music that you play or that somebody's playing in front of you? That's all you would ever hear. You would never, ever hear any other music because there was no way to reproduce music. And it's so insane when you think about it because, you know, the way our world has changed, the way now you can have music in your phone, in your car, when you're walking around, in your anytime you want. And that's like a complete. Like it's such a novelty in human history that if you do a timeline of human history, that's like (laughs) 0.01% of human history that ability has existed. 
Yeah, I mean, the recorded sound, you're spot on. I mean, it's basically a century old. It's a tad long older than yeah. that. But for, yeah. for all intents and purposes, it's been and, – and even then, I would argue that recordings didn't really get good until the 50s anyway. So you're talking about, well, let's call it seven, 70 to 80 years at, at the most. Yeah. That's yeah. – Post World War II, really, till recordings, I mean, till, till records started becoming a thing as well, like proper vinyl. Yeah, it's wild. It's really bizarre when you think about it, how quickly stuff has changed. Because today it would be hard to imagine life. I mean, think about it. Some, somebody wipes out from every moment of your life all the music you have listened to, except when he was live. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big chunk. Yeah, that's a huge chunk, right? That's a big chunk. I've seen a fair amount of live concerts and gigs in my time, but 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 if that's all I'm relying on, there are yeah, I mean the vast majority of it. Yeah. Precisely. Remar it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Well, look, even philosophers must sleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on, and it was great talking. I thought it was it would be really interesting to pick your brain on a few matters and get your thoughts, but also learn about your your musical upbringing and your journey. I have fun with that. I mean, even now you made me think about it, like even the other podcast I do, History on Fire, a bunch of the titles of the episodes are musical quotes. Like I did one recently about some outlaws in Brazil in the 1920s and 1930s, and it's called uh, Machine Gun Blues from like the Social Distortion song. Or, right. Uh, yeah, no, I was I, wondering uh, where that was from. I was like, wait, is this, is he doing a, 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 a has History on Fire turned into a musical history podcast? Yeah. I mean, is, it's, it's not. I just quote, you know, I just throw <laughs> in uh, little quotes in there where I have fun with, uh, with throwing like either a title of a song or something along those lines. I'll tell you just for fun. I, just, I was just looking right now at some of my old episodes. I found one about the conquest of Mexico called People of the Sun from Rage Against the ah, Machine. I have yeah. one about uh, Caravaggio in prison. And so I use Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison Blues. <laughs> I have, you know, having fun with it. Now that the episode is done, all that's left to do is to wish you a wonderful day. Thank you for listening and have a great one. Would you like to hear a terrible story? Yes, always. One day the rod shall teach you. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo!
All right, let's go to rehearsal. We'll roll on this one. Oh.